My job is just to ask them a bunch of really difficult questions that they may not have the time or energy or bandwidth to really ask themselves. And then what I do is I typically for an hour stand up here and let them do the talking. And most of these people have the answers. I, I don't sit on top of a mountain and say that I've got a magic solution. I don't, right? Okay, Naveed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, Naveed, I, I I'm, I'm really happy to have you here because um, you, you do a multiple uh, different things for the innovation community. Um, the number one, which is um, you're an you're, uh, entrepreneur in residence at the DMZ, one of Canada's probably most, uh, most uh, well-known and well-publicized well uh, innovation accelerator uh, and incubator for, like, for early stage companies. So, uh, you know, I think this is uh, really prudent of you to be here because we talk to a lot of early stage companies and I love to deep dive deep into your mindset of what innovation looks like for you and what you've seen and uh, what you believe will uh, you know, lead us into the light of the pandemic, uh, post-pandemic future. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, I think the DMZ's, um, you know, done a great job in, in terms of nurturing a number of different startups from across the gambit. Um, to answer your question, I think that the, there is a big difference between young startups who are, who have an idea or ideation, ideation phase, who don't speak to their customers and are constantly iterating their product, um, versus those who are constantly, even if it's small iterations, but just going, Hey, we spoke to this customer. He, you know, he's willing to try us out. And even if it's not half the money or a quarter of the money that um, we were thinking of, at least he's willing to pay for something and then be able mm -hmm. to develop on that over and over and over again. And I think, you know, it's not me, but it's, it's common knowledge that unless you're constantly iterating based on your customer's needs uh, and you're not generating revenue and you're not watching your P&L, then it's really just a cool high school project, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that, like um, one of the things that's been lauded is uh, the idea that innovation, uh, innovation equals um, invention times commercialization, right? So invention is like the, the, ca the capture of some kind of IP, intellectual property, right? It could be a product, a service, a process. But unless you have, unless you commercialize this, uh, you know, take it to market, buy, uh, get uh, get the people who buy the product, or you know, are willing to put money into it. You don't have really have an innovation, right? You're just tinkering. You're just making things in the sandbox, right? Yeah, I mean, if you go to the famous book of, uh, you know, um, what's the book, Blue Oceans or Red Oceans or whatever it is, but they talk about this concept of value innovation, mm. and, and I would agree with you, Ravi. I think innovation. If it's just innovation, but no one's buying it, there's no commercialization. I'll go over that, go back to that same point. It's it's a cool high school project that you're just having fun doing in your basement or with a bunch of friends, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But you should not think that you're going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Right. Um, you have to have a client. Someone's got to be able to. Someone's got to be able to write you a check, and if they're not willing to write you a check um either once or on a consistent basis 
you need to go back to the drawing board and, and, and eat some humble pie and say, okay, this isn't working. What do I need to do to really make it of value? Mm. So how, how do we fight this this growing trend, right? That it's, we're almost being publicized that the startups don't make profit. Startups don't make revenue, right? When, um, like, you know, Amazon just finally recorded its, uh, its first quarter in pro- raising profits. And we start realizing that a lot of companies are, you know, valued not on the current uh, valuation, but what they, their, their future could be, whether it be in the public markets or even in the private markets, right? People kind of get, get into the idea that, you know, just have projected values just enough, right? What happens, you know, so, uh, and, and a lot of companies get caught up in this. So I'd love to know more about how do you get sales focus, right? How do you get, um, you know, uh, these engin- uh, engineers or people building a hardware company or people building something, you know, actually, actually working on the grind? How do you take, how do you get them to pick up a phone call and uh, start putting themselves out there, right? I think this is a known struggle. So we deal with a lot of um, like technical minded founders who have the struggle, right? They're super comfortable in the lab, in the garage, in the in, 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 behind the computer, behind uh, you know behind a work desk, desk. But getting in front of customers is not really um, their forte, right? So, do we take these people who are uncomfortable with this and train them and make them good at sales, or do we match them with people who can do these or have these skill sets? And, uh, and uh, how do we supercharge this? Yeah, I, I think that look, if you're really good at something and you've got this much of a window, you don't want to be retraining an engineer to become the sales guy or the head of sales or the CFO Mm. or that company, right? Let him or her do what they're really freaking good at. And that is, you know, build good code, make sure it's stabilized, but also understand that in a pie like this of roles and responsibilities, that is one piece. Just because you've got mm-hmm. good code and a good product doesn't mean anything if all the other pieces aren't there. So then yeah. as a startup engineer, understand, okay, this is my lane or this is what I'm good at. What else is missing? And mm-hmm. if I need a CEO, then that's another role. If I'm going to be the CEO, then as a CEO, I need to find, f- figure out what those gaps are. But the gaps, particularly on sales, need to be identified quickly. And you shouldn't mm-hmm. be like doing everything because, you know, it's it's very tough for an engineer to go out and, and be your top sales guy. Very tough. It's not impossible, but the odds are against you. And it's the I would say the exact same thing. Tell this top sales guy, hey, by the way, I need you to code. He's just going to give you a blank stare. Right. It, it, so it's not fair to say, well, the engineer should do the same. Mm. I completely agree with you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm shocked by how many people look at like, you know, people build companies like you're, you know, and, and yell at them like, you're not making enough calls. Are you getting in front of customers, right? When what we really need to do is, you know, find these miracle workers that are able to build these products, make these, uh, make these innovations and connect them to people who can move them. Yes. Right. And so what does that look like? Like, does that, is that the jo- responsibility of, advisors who join the board is it the job of um you know accelerators accelerator programs and incubator programs that they join mentors within those programs who 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 can drive the initial sales uh, for early stage companies look i mean in terms of the very initial sales um yes you can go through an incubator yes you can have advisors uh, 
Incubators are going to cost you time, sometimes money, sometimes equity. Advisors, mm -hmm. you'll need to have the time, the energy. Uh, if they're on your board, that's even more energy and time. Some investors may be able to help you. But those initial sales, that's on you and your team, mm -hmm. right? Like, you've got to be able to say, hey, I've got at least one or two customers. Mm -hmm. um, and just because you've got one or two customers, you know, Simon Sinek said it the best in terms of that crossing the chasm. Uh, yeah, you could have one or two and they, they get it. But you need to build a machine that's going to be able to go across and get it to people who don't get it, but will later on. Mm, and okay. that requires that requires management, that requires leadership. And those mm -hmm. are things that I think a lot of startups, particularly the younger, uh, younger ones um, uh, who are first time startups, they're just not getting, I, I believe. Mm. That's really interesting. So the initial sales are not necessarily indicators it's about the machine that gets you to the larger market, right? What does that yeah. machine look like? What does that, what does the mechanism look like? So in my opinion, the mechanism or that machine, again, just doesn't depend on the head of sales, right? You could have a really good sales guy, but it's an entire infrastructure and a foundation that needs to get built. So your product needs to work. The customer success needs to be there. Um, the customer success team needs to be there after the sale is done. Um, you need to have your pitch correctly. You need to make sure the P&L works in your favor just because you sold something and you're continuously at a loss and you're literally buying customers, which some people say, well, we need to just buy customers. Hmm. But we were bootstrapped. And so we didn't have the luxury of buying customers, right? We had revenue, we had COGS and our COGS, and then we had, uh, you know, then we had fixed, uh, fixed expenses and then we needed to have a profit. You need to yeah. at least, even if you're not going to get to that profit point of view, you need to understand all those pieces in place in order for that sales machine to really start to go and move forward and be scalable. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that's the, the, the question of the day, right? Like, how do I take what I have right now and make it? Um, so one of my favorite thinkers I, I've been following and I talk about a lot now is uh, Naval Ravikant, the, the co-founder of AngelList. And he talks about uh, what he calls points of leverage, right? Okay. When, uh, when you're trying to solve a problem, the different points of leverage you can have. And um, he calls, you know, there's old types of leverage, which is uh, labor leverage and um, capital leverage, right? And uh, the new ones are product leverage, media leverage, right? Things that are ethereal, like, you know, you, you, that, that are permissionless. And he talks about how, you know, by gathering the right points of leverage, you can, you can work this towards moving the problem. And as you solve the problem, that's how you extract revenue, right? You, solve, you, you make money on the problems you solve. Yeah. So talking about like the mechanism of, of, of building it up, right? You can either bring in, you know, labor, convince somebody either by selling equity, give them equity, or by, um, you know, some, you know, so make them passionate enough that they come and help you out or, or, or feed you, right? Do labor for you. Or you can go and raise capital and then use the capital to, to hire the people to do, do that for you, right? Um, but the, what I'm obsessed with is this new types of leverage, right? Product and media leverage, right? 
So building out a product that can go out and do something for you uh, that you can't. And part of that could be like an automated marketing cycle, like an automated marketing uh, system, like, you know, built with ads, ad networks and all those kind of things. There's, there's different pipelines you can do, but also media as a, as like a mechanism, right? So what I, what, I, what I love about our permissionless world right now is that you can just jump on a platform and just talk about your idea and go on Reddit. You can go on places and, and go find people that can willingly help you, right? But I, I really want to learn from the context of, um, of DMZ. You know, this is one of the, like the kind of well-known institutions for innovation. How do you, you know, triage companies inside? Like, how do you find out the right company and the right company to work with? What does the, the winner mindset look like? Yeah, so, you know, in terms of how the companies are selected, that's done by some very talented young people who decide on, on what companies will go through. They look at, um, they primarily look at your uh, monthly recurring revenue. So if it's someone that has got very low monthly recurring revenue or it's very, very choppy, probably not the best for an accelerator program. Probably so mm -hmm. very much the ideation phase or the, um, you know, the, uh, there's the ideation phase, then there's a the validation phase, and then there's the acceleration phase. That's the three buckets that historically DMZ has looked at. So mm -hmm. um, when you're looking at the accelerator phase, which is where I've been involved, you want to make sure there's a certain amount of MRR. You want to make sure there's a certain amount of runway that's there for the, um, uh, for the company. It's not that mm -hmm. your MRR is great, but you've only got two months of revenue, right? Mm -hmm. or, or two months of, of uh, runway left. You're going to have a tough time because there's a lot of requirements for us to be, for you to be involved in that DMZ. Yeah. So I, I think there's a number of different things that are required, but MRR is definitely one. The soundness and the experience of the team, the maturity of the team is, is going mm -hmm. to be very important. We're not looking at companies that have got 30 or 40 people. We're looking at even if you have six people, you know, are they um, are they able to make good strategic decisions? Do they have the the um, the knowledge and the willingness? And and also, if you're entering the DMZ, are you coachable? I think that's a big thing. Mm. There's a lot of companies that have great MRR. Um, and whatever, and they enter the DMZ, and I've had, you know, CEOs are like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I already know what I need to do. I'm like, okay, well, how can I add value? Now, you know what? I was just told to come here, and I'm like, you know what? That's okay. Probably not the best fit for mm -hmm. for this session. You probably need to go uh, and and look at somewhere else. And and I will give that feedback. Look, you need to be able to uh, be coachable as a CEO mm -hmm. and. Um, or as an executive. And I, I think those are some of the criteria that we look at. Yeah. You know, uh, Navid, I'd love to hear about your history of how you came to be at the DMZ. What was the uh, um, fast ventures that, that took you here? Yeah, for me, it was um, really trying to see how I could, you know, um, try and stay engaged with the startup community um, mm -hmm. while trying to also give back. Um, when yep. I was... Uh, when I became a CEO of Addictive, um, I was, uh, for lack of a better word, parachuted in um, mm -hmm. due to circumstances. And um, I unfortunately did not have a network of people that I could go to or rely on or learn from. 
um, and I made a shit ton of mistakes, um, more than more than I should have, to be okay. quite honest. Mm -hmm. But had I gone through a DMZ or accelerator or had really good advisors, I probably would have made half the mistakes that I did. Yeah. Can you talk a little about that company? Uh, well, well, uh, is yeah, that addictive? absolutely. Um, so Addictive Mobility was, um, still is a, um, a mobile ad network. It was created in 2010 uh, by my youngest brother, who was a serial entrepreneur and much better entrepreneur than I could ever imagine being. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he came to me with the idea that he wanted to move from digital out of home into mobile advertising. And uh, I was a banker historically, was a banker overseas. And um, he's like, look, I just need some help transitioning, you know, managing my P&L, managing the operations as I transition from one type of business, which is digital out of home to mobile advertising. And, you know, yep. can you help with that? And I was in between moving from Riyadh to Abu Dhabi. And so I said, sure, I'm happy to do that for maybe a little, maybe a month until things get finalized. Well, that month ended up being about nine months. Um, enjoyed absolutely every single moment of working with Nasser and, um, and uh, we transitioned uh, pretty successfully. We started to build our own tech, started to build out what's called a DSP, a demand side platform, um, started gaining traction in terms of customers. And we did this all while we were bootstrapped, mm. um, which was very important and, and kudos to Nasser and the team. Um, I then went back into banking, went back into the Middle East but continue to work with Nasser and the team as they grew. Um, in August 1st of 2012, um, I unfortunately got a phone call that uh, at the age of 34, Nasser passed away in his sleep. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was tough. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the team was very resilient and mm -hmm. And so coming back uh, after, you know, uh, after the funeral and everything else, spoke to the team and they're like, look, we think there's something here and we want to, um, we want to build, uh, we want to make sure Nasser's legacy lives on. And, um, and I was like, okay. So mm -hmm. left banking and uh, decided to jump, you know, head first into into the role, started off as initially mm -hmm. as an interim COO and and then um, became the CEO about six months later once I knew the lay of the land. But I think the last thing, Ravi, which we probably didn't talk about, which I think is important, is that um, one of the big things that I believe needs to be important for a CEO um, or anyone building a company is it can't be about the money. Yeah, uh, the money will come, hopefully. Right. But it truly it sounds so cliche and I'm listening to myself as I say it. But um, I believe we were successful because we really wanted to make sure that we didn't screw up what Nasser built. Mm. And that was really the foundation of a lot of the people that were there. And they did it for him. Wow. They didn't do wow. it for me. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to be part of something cool. And as we grew, we got to 56 people. When I came on board, we were only 15. We were just under 3 million in revenue and we were we were barely profitable. When mm -hmm. we were acquired by the Weather Network in October of 2017, almost five years later, um, we were at just under 12 million in revenue. 
we were still completely bootstrapped, no debt. Um, and we were, we had EBITDA of just under a million and a half and we were at 56 wow. staff. Wow. 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 Yeah, it, it takes, uh, but you've got to be unhealthily committed. Yeah. So, oh man, there's a lot you gave us to digest. And, uh, uh, I, I don't want to press too deep here, but this is, was your brother who died, who passed away. Yeah. And his, his, yes. his legacy that you took on. I mean, I got to imagine that that's got to weigh on you, right? While you're building all this. Um, how did it affect the culture of the, of the firm? Like you said, it helped, like, you know, give people a, a purpose other than what the work they're doing, right? Yeah. Um, could you tell us about that? Like, you know, where did you have tough times where, you know, you weren't making money and, and things were hard? Like, how did, like, you know, how do you weather those storms? Yeah, you uh, look, weathering, um, you know, so there's good and bad of taking over that, uh, that yeah. type of scenario. The good is that you surround yourself with people who are really passionate. The mm. bad is that, um, you know, you will beat yourself. And I did beat myself over if I made a bad call. And sometimes yeah. I was afraid to make a two of an aggressive call. Right, because it wasn't my company. I was I was a custodian of my brother's company. So, um, where someone would have said, "Oh, you should go out and do this, this, and this," I was like, "You know what? I don't want to screw up his legacy." So those were the things that I had to manage in terms of the positive side of it. Um, mm -hmm. We tried to instill Nasser's culture, which was, "Hey, uh, Nasser always used to say two things: bite off more than you can chew, and then chew like hell." So we had that mentality. Mm -hmm. um, and the other one was, you know, and I was nine years or eight years older than Nasser, but he hired very young junior people and said, give them a shot. And, yeah. and we did. We hired a lot of young people and we gave them all shots. And a lot of them were fresh out of university, first time jobs, everything else. But as we started to grow and scale the company, I also began to realize that this isn't going to get to where it needs to be if I'm just going to hire um, mm. young people around me and surround myself with young people who have not as much experience as, as they need to, to to scale this thing. So I don't know if you're a sports fan or not. I'm a big basketball fan. But, um, you know, what do really good GMs do? And they then have a really good talent pool. They grow them up, but they have guys like Kyle Lowry and, and others who are 10 year or 15 year veterans to make sure that that stability is there and that maturity is there. Mm. And that's what I started to do uh, later on in the, in, in the following years. Yeah. 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 So bring in like uh, some high, like some big guns uh, to show kind of like the path. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But again, um, look, I made mistakes. I, my worst yeah. mistake was I hired a big gun um, mm. who wanted to, join a cool startup and mm -hmm. but he came from a large organization from a large media house um and we made a huge press release about hiring this person three months later he left wow um and when i spoke to him he's like yeah i re didn't realize how tough a startup was <laughs> um and, you know, I didn't know that uh, I thought I was going to get a secretary. I thought, you know, I was just going to just call the shots. And I was like, 
no, my friend, that's that's <laughs> that's not what we do here. You need to put away the plate. You need to wash the glasses, and you need to build the. You need to start by building your own framework and everything else like that. And so it's not just a matter of hiring big guns. It's a matter of hiring the right attitude as well. Mm. There's a uh, a, uh, a chief operations officer I know. Uh, he works at a startup that just it's it start it's growing, but you know he's he's a, he's a very uh, senior person. Like you know he's been like this is probably his second or third kind of like move, and, like uh, and he he calls himself uh, chief bottle washer, just to remind himself that he's, all the all the tasks are important, right? And to humble himself. Um, I think what you're talking about is really uh, interesting because as uh, small company scale, right? Like by bringing in more corporate people, you think you get more serious. But in actuality, like, you know, corporate people are good at doing very narrow tasks, right? The larger the organization you come from, the less things you're, you're, the more focused you are. And where a startup is different. Um, I've been on uh, on Clubhouse, the app, uh, this whole week. And we've been discussing this idea of um, one one guy, um, Travis Ratnam. He's the CEO of Knowledge Hook. He's like a, he's got, he's like a $100 million unicorn. And he talks right. about, you know, one of the mistakes that... Uh, people do with their think startups are the same as big companies. It's based off of Steve Blank's um, uh, essay from 2003, like uh, search versus execute, right? And it's like, star- like startups are not la- the smaller version of large companies. Startups are basically experiments, right? It's like people in lab coats running experiments, trying to find a repeatable business model. Um, but as you find the repeatable business model and you go from search to execute, that transition of like when you find your model, what you want to move into, is one of the deadliest parts, right? Because bringing in the right people, you know, there was another um, uh, rumor I was talking to. Um, uh, I think I think that one of the heads of TikTok, and they were talking about how um, there there was like the first ten people you hire in a company, like you know, is so important because it sets the tra- trend moving forward, the the culture and how you uh, how things are going to be built on. And they set the foundation. Right, so there's all these pivotal moves that needs to be done, and I think that's what's the the main the, the main focal like uh, the main attention of like an accelerator program, right? Is to figure out when you go stop being a startup to go into an actual become an actual business when you can actually go from stuff from search to execute, and and jumpstart to move forward. So laying off of your experiences of you know what you learned from addictive, right? What led you to go to an accelerator to help out to give back? Yeah, as I said, I think. Um... My main thought there was, um, how can I make sure people don't screw up as much as I screwed up? Mm-hmm. Right? That, that was yeah. really it. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> more. Um, there were just so many mistakes that I made. And if there was any way, shape, or form that I could make sure that people just didn't screw up as much as I did, then I've mm. done something good. Yeah. Right? And, I think nothing, uh, nothing haunts more than a failed startup or a failed idea, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, I, I don't know. I, I haven't had that experience in terms of yeah, yeah. Uh, starting something right from scratch. I, I'm doing that now. and But I, I've got a very sort of um, uh, different approach to this where if this thing fails, that's okay. But I don't want to go out and raise money right now. We're just in the yeah. process of, you know, we're in the ideation phase. And a couple of the yeah. people that I'm working with are like, so when when do you think we should raise i'm like we will look at raising once i'm comfortable that i'm not going to go and throw somebody's money away yeah right that's just me 
-hmm. Somebody else say, you know what, don't worry about it, go get some. Uh, but why would you do that if you yourself have not done enough due diligence and put your own money and skin in the game to get mm. to that point where, yeah, now it can actually go because that money should be a turbo boost. It shouldn't be part of your fact finding because then I think that just sets a wrong tone. Yeah, that's really interesting you say that because, um, you know, getting money to come in, that's ideally when money wants to come in, right? You want to find that, invest that, uh, that investment, right? If you're an angel investor or later that, Really, the, the people know what, you know, they have built something or they have something and your money is going into like boosting it, getting it to market. Yeah, I may be different. I mean, I, I may be the uh, the dumb one or the the one that is doing it the wrong way. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I just know that, look, uh, I don't want to take somebody's money and and blow six, six hundred thousand or a million bucks and turn around to that guy and go, yeah. Sorry, we actually didn't know that we had product market. We, you know, we we didn't even know that we could actually do this thing. But I, I blew away a million of your hard-earned money. Yeah. I, I know how hard how hard it is to make money. Why should I do that to somebody? Is my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that that, that is definitely tough, right? But going back to um, you know, the, the the work you do now with with, with companies. Uh, can you isolate more about like what your day to day looks like? How you help? Like, uh, how do you work with early stage companies and uh, the type type of wisdom you like to impart on them? Yeah. So there's no look. <laughs> what I try and do with most companies is the following, um, yeah. and I let them know this is that in any good session, I should be talking mm -hmm. no more than ten to fifteen percent of the time. Yeah. Right. My job is just to ask them a bunch of really difficult questions that they may not have the time or energy or bandwidth to really ask themselves. And then what I do is I typically for an hour stand up here and let them do the talking. And most of these people have the answers. I, I don't sit on top of a mountain and say that I've got a magic solution. I don't. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. What I is ask a number of questions. So just before I came on with you, I had a session. Wonderful company, not going to name them. Um, they're going through a major challenge right now. They mm. are uh, trying to take advantage of a, a certain health situation, um, mm. obviously COVID. And yeah. they weren't necessarily built for that, but they're scrambling and they, they're trying to get leverage. But mm. The CEO right now is challenged because he's a first time CEO. The chief operating officer was uh, it's her it's her first time, you know, doing this and they could potentially screw up some of their biggest clients right now because in house uh, it's a mess. And so I said, look, what are your priorities? Mm. And look, the priorities are going to be and we actually had six. <laughs> And I said, okay, is this important? No, not really. Removed it. What about this? No. Okay, removed it. Then we ended up with only three priorities, right? And I said, okay, now, and I didn't come up with them. They did. And I said, okay, mm -hmm. you know, there were two people on the call. I said, okay, person number one, identify one, two, and three. And then I said the same thing for the other person, identify one, two, and three. And they started to communicate with each other and they realized that, okay, 
these are the priorities. And yes, coaching definitely is number one. Profit sharing is number two. And then strengthening the leadership and stabilizing that is number three. So the final conclusion was, you know, we really need to start focusing on cleaning up our house versus going out and getting brand new business on top of a rickety house that we already have. Mm -hmm. That came from them, not me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're pretty much guiding them through this. Like, so I went through this with the, when I when I was at the, the University of Toronto at the Hub. Uh, I went through the their the first incubator program, and uh, Greg Graham, the director there, did exactly this. It's mostly just that, you know, listen to me decompress my anxiety and angst, and then try to mine out some truth out of it, and then just remind us that that these problems exist, and you got to go out and get back out there. But um, you know, with what you're saying, you know, resonates so much, right? So sometimes having an outside perspective that just you know peers through the mess and be like, okay. You know, uh, let's pick through this, right? Let's let's work on this together, and just like from a different perspective, looking at things outside in, just literally cleans up the mind. Um, a lot of times we get, you know, like uh, like entrepreneurs get messy; like they get used to the mess, and uh, they're working in multiple things, and then their focus gets lost, right? So, I, I like uh, like uh, essentially what you're saying is you help people remain in focus, right, uh, towards a larger goal. I guess, uh, mm. you know, I. Uh, I'm more of a sounding board, more of, yeah, maybe that's it. That's a good way of putting it, uh, Ravi, is yeah, yeah. I try and get people to refocus. Mm. I'm going to awesome. use that now. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so speaking of that, um, the type of companies, right? So what type of companies come through the DMZ? What type of companies land across your desk? Uh, so within the DMZ, it's uh, it's a complete gambit, right? It could be uh -huh. from B to B to B to C, um, from healthcare to manufacturing, uh, focus to you know advertising. It, it's a gambit that comes across the DMZ. Um, uh -huh. My role in Can Health is very particular. Was very much focused on healthcare, right? Yeah. Um, but I think the, the one similarity that all the companies have is that they're strong engineering based or they're strong tech based companies uh, versus and ideally, if they if they if they get to the accelerator program, they're not necessarily a service based company. Mm -hmm. They're a product based mm -hmm. company that they're looking at scaling. Mm. Interesting. So a, pro a product-based company that they're uh, scaling. So generally, you know, B2B SaaS companies are like the go-to right now. Um, is that is that heavily uh, on the pile? Is there any hardware companies? Like, what does it look like? No, they, and you're right. Yeah, B2B SaaS companies is the is a cool, hip, new thing right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I understand why, because it's recurring revenue. Right. And and if you're looking at, you know, getting that amazing valuation, then the best valuation comes to those who are SaaS model companies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that being said, we were never a SaaS company. Um, uh, you know, did we get the best valuation? No. But you know what? We we built good stuff. We were profitable. We scaled. We were bootstrapped, so you can still do that stuff, I believe, and and not be a SaaS company. Yeah, I, I, I t I've been talking to a few companies lately, you know, 
that uh, are really always at the edge, right? They're 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 you know uh, exactly what you're talking about. Like they're between um, they they've found their their search and they're trying to transition into um, execute model, right? Trying to turn into a business and, and grow, but one of the struggles is between that time frame is you're not making any money or you're not raising any money. If you don't have money in the bank, right? And, uh, you know, salary is not there. You know, it's very easy for your mindset to get a weekend, right? What do you, what do you think about how, how we support uh, innovation overall? Um, and there's a few large, large scale ideas. Andrew Yang brought it up in the States when he ran for uh, political office. Um, and with the idea of universal basic income, this idea that uh, there'll be like a flat rate for all citizens, therefore a cushion. It's not enough to completely survive, but it is enough that, you know, there's suddenly something coming in. And we've been kind of experiencing that now with CRB and, and, and previously with CERB. There's a lot of a lot of innovators, a lot of uh, you know, early stage companies, uh, founders uh, and small business owners that that really benefit off this. But for the first time, you know, there was like a whole population being like, knowing that there's a consistent income coming in no matter what, right? And uh, that, that they can grow off of and, and, and bounce off of. And it's really like captured the imagination of people. You know, and, and all feeds back to more like uh, Richard Friedman's uh, theories out of the Chicago, Chicago School uh, business, um, talking about how there should be almost like a negative income tax, where if you're below a poverty line, there's guaranteed income. And the idea of guaranteed income is that cap- capitalism, where there's not a zero-sum game, where we have, you know, your your income is not zero, right? Regardless of that, the system values you as a productive member, right? We're going to be paid out. But then it's your job to get it to a different level, right? To think about income streams. So whether it's you, you access your labor or you build out something or a business or, a pro, you know, or like you become like a freelancer, whatever it is that you do, right? Your job is to get more income and you can value, value your thoughts about that. Um do you have any thoughts or frameworks about how we support innovation for a greater, like from like a wider, wider scope of things? Yeah, look, I think what you said is really good and, mm-hmm. and very, um, you know, uh, very noble, very Canadian. I think that's, that's great when it comes to the, the, the mass audiences. Right. And, and, and I'm a full believer uh, in, yeah. in that process when it comes to, making sure that no one goes below a certain poverty line or anything else like that. That being said, um, you know, I'm more of the, uh, of the kind of Mark Cuban mindset Mm. and and that, and that is that, look, you know, entrepreneurship isn't for everybody. Mm. And, and, and you have to really make sure that if you're not going to, uh, you don't want to cushion somebody so much that you have a bunch of average companies, right? Um, you want to you want to be able to really put your money on, and maybe it's a Canadian thing. I don't know. Some people have said it's a Canadian thing, but you know, you really want to have ten other Shopify's, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But. That means that there you're gonna have if you have ten other Shopify's, that means you gotta let fifty or a hundred companies die. Mm. That haven't hit the mark, and that should be okay with us, in my humble opinion, right? Doesn't mean we don't support them, but if you're not, it goes back to that same point that I I, I said very early, right, or or halfway through our conversation. Um, 
I could do the easy thing and say, look, mm -hmm. I exited a company. I've got some good people surrounding me. I'm going to go out and raise right now. And whether I make it or not, that's mm -hmm. their money. Right. Yeah. Um, and people do that. But I want to. I think it's more valuable when I've got my own money on the line. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm going to really, really work. I'm going to put my blood, sweat and tears into this because this mm. every dollar is mine that's being spent. I'm going to be 10 times. I'm going to have to be 10 times smarter. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that mindset of, oh, I'm going to get bailed out. Oh, it's not my money. I think is this for me personally, I think it's an easy escape route. Yeah. I don't know. That's just my view. No, uh, I absolutely agree. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, when that when you're pushed to that wall, you know, you're pushed to that uh, that need that really brings out the creative juices. Um, so, you know, going uh, going back to that, right? Like, yeah, but uh, not everybody can be entrepreneurs, right? Uh, I'd love to dive into this because the, we're seeing a, 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 in, like a because of automation, you know, we're seeing the, the, the new industrial wave hitting us. A lot of jobs are at the risk of being automated and going away. And the thoughts coming up is like, what do people have to do? And the idea is that, you know, even though automation is taking away, taking away information, information worker level work, right? Like, uh, right from the information age, um, you know, the new type of worker, uh, Peter Drucker, I think, termed this, it's uh, called knowledge worker, right? The new, new age worker is going to be people who solve problems, who leverage uh, knowledge, deep knowledge in, uh, in particular fields and to solve complex problems and, and get paid out for that. And the, the two, between the two is that information workers of the previous age, white collar workers, went in and they, they process information, right? They did a very linear task inputs and outputs but knowledge workers they're input into a level where they're trying to improve uh, like uh, you know exponentially by either building a process or a pro or a product or deliver a service that can improve over time uh, right with exponential results um so within that is i think uh, entrepreneurs and founders right people trying to scale these massive companies trying to build build up entire businesses but it's also within that a whole bunch of service uh, services being provided right people uh, freelancers um, you know, uh, particular professions of uh, professionals, mentors, uh, advisors, uh, people with like a, like a network of like, you know, a book of network, a book of business that uh, they, they sell out, right? Like there's all these people who are more getting more, you know, like they, they're leveraging knowledge, they're ne leveraging with like their, 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 their external capital, right? Uh, to make plays into, into within the innovation industry, right? What, do you, what are your thoughts on like the growing ecosystem around innovation? Especially in Canada. Yeah, and again, look, uh, I'm uh, all, all of what you said is absolutely spot on, right? Um, you do have different types of uh, groups, but again, and, and anyone can be an entrepreneur. The the guy mm -hmm. who who uh, has his own taxi or is an Uber driver and decides that he's going to be the, his own his or her own boss, that for me is an entrepreneur. Right. Mm. Uh, it, it may not be in tech. It may not be scaling to a million people or a thousand people company or a hundred people company. But he mm. is an independent uh, self-employed worker. And yeah. oh, sorry, that would be self-employed. I think an entrepreneur is somebody different. Uh, sorry, let yeah. me redefine. That. An entrepreneur is somebody who is not just going to take that knowledge base, but really wants to build a business. Mm. Right and and really wants to scale 
a business um, and solve a number, uh, the same problem for a number of people, not just for one person. An Uber driver solves it for that one person who's going to take from point A to point B, right? Mm -hmm. A person who owns a pizza store down there solves it one at a time, right? But it's not a scalable business. For an entrepreneur, particularly a tech entrepreneur, you need to be of the mindset that I want to solve a problem that is got a big enough target addressable market or a service addressable market, right? And mm-hmm. I'm going to not just build a product, I'm going to build an entire mechanism, an yeah. entire infrastructure. I'm going to build uh, and, and grow people and, and grow a company with a proper P&L. That, I think, is very different than, than just being a simple entrepreneur. Hmm. That's so. That that's uh, really interesting, right? Because there was a, uh, a talk done by uh, I always forget his name, but he wrote the book "Rich Dad Poor Dad," and he talks oh, about yeah, four yeah. quadrants, right? He talks about uh, people falling into four quadrants, right? One is the workers who are just trading their time for money, right? They're you know the linear workers, uh, you know, getting paid out for linear work, and um, others are small businesses. There was a, there's a, the third category I, I always forget, right? But uh, sorry, the second category I always forget. The third category being um, um, small businesses and then enterprises, right? And he says there's a vast difference between small businesses and enterprises. Small businesses, you know, are generally run by uh, you know a few people or you know a solopreneur, and they only run um, when the actual owners are operating it. Whereas enterprises work regardless if the, if their owners work or not they're asset classes right and they're two different they're two different thing kind of things so an entrepreneur essentially is trying to build an asset class uh, as yes. a self-operating vehicle right very yeah. different from a small business which is just an entity a, a legal entity that just houses a bunch of people together and operates them uh, towards a task right absolutely and there's nothing wrong with either of them but mm. if you're going to become an asset class enterprise, to go back to your initial point, that should not be subsidized. There mm. should be no minimum on this thing. That is hard. You need yeah. to get your ass kicked. You need to have hundreds of doses of reality. You mm. need to go through the grind. And then you'll be able to get to that enterprise le- enterprise level. Otherwise, you can stay here, and that's okay, right? Yeah. And we can subsidize you and do all that for the global good and, and the economy and everything else, or you can be here. But if you're going to mm-hmm. get to here, right? Yeah. And you're going to compete globally where everybody else in the world is going to try and kick your ass, mm. right? You need to be, you need to have a different mindset. You need to have balls of steels, and you need to, you need to be beaten the shit out of, to be honest with you. I love that. I love Not that. Not be freehand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that was the best case for uh, a free a free enterprise that I've uh, I've actually heard. Um, so going back to this, right? Like you know, entrepreneurship and and supporting entrepreneurship. Um, in the the Atlantic region, uh, I think I believe in Nova Scotia, there was a fintech company late recently that got just got acquired. And the acquisition was 10% of, I think, Nova Scotia's entire GDP, like yearly GDP. 
and the whole Atlantic region just woke up, and the whole Atlantic region just woke up, and they're like, "Hold on, wait, what are these like these groups of people did? We're like working in small fishing <laughs> fishing villages and inter- on internet, built this ethereal fintech company that got acquired for a large sum of money, and they're Amazing. like, what is going on here? And now um, there's this whole fear of activity in Atlantic provinces um, supporting entrepreneurship. We had um, the the CEO of a Propel Accelerator on the podcast talking about this and how excited things are. But more than that, like now, um, the, the what's it? The Minister of Educa- uh, Innovation uh, said the, uh, announced a federal program to be helping to increase uh, Wi-Fi internet, right? Wi-Fi, uh, sorry, not Wi-Fi internet. Uh, to more rural areas of Canada, you know, we're a wide nation, and not all places have uh, access to, com- to connections. There's a hundred million dollar project to, like, you know, um, to provide more internet to the Atlantic regions, like a cable running through uh, Hudson Bay, I think, to like Nunavut. Crazy stuff that we're doing, right? So, uh, one of my interesting thing is, you you know, you talked about entrepreneurship being hard and it's not meant for everybody, right? Should we should we not at least equalize access to it? You know, remove the the tyranny of location, so that at least with internet we can work from anywhere. But but that's not entrepreneurship. That's basic mm. necessities. So yeah. that's where I'm saying that uh, I'm a big believer in our social system, in our social welfare yeah. program, and and ensuring that everyone gets fed, everyone has internet, everyone has really good schools. Uh, you know, everyone has free healthcare. I'm a absolute believer in all of this. Mm. But what I'm saying is, if you want to get to that other thing of building an asset that you could potentially make millions and millions of dollars and secure you and your next generation or next three generations lifetime, well, that's mm-hmm. hard. And do, yep. not, do, do not make this thing like, oh, anyone can do this. Yep. No. Yep. You need to go through a whole bunch of pain, yeah, to get there, is what I'm saying. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, one last, uh, one last point to throw at you, um, and I'd love to get your point opinion on this. Uh, Scott Galloway, NYU professor, um, love at, 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 love him, a huge, huge fan, right? And um, he talks about this. It's like even though entrepreneurship is now sexy and like we're, we we profitize it. Um, we're actually at a historical low for it. You know, on a fifty-year fifty-year um, yield curve for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship, right? We're like you know, based off the cost of living has gone up tremendously up, and the level of entrepreneurship has actually gone down. And even though we publicize them and see and see more of it in our media and social media, as the people you know starting companies getting acquired and bought it, and so it's becoming more more popularized, right? As a profession, we actually we actually have a prevalence of, of less people in it. Right, um, into the game. So, do you feel that you know what? Is that, what what is your thoughts on this? Right, like at least, um, right, like so. The really the reason the social welfare program was to make it so that people from lower income areas could take the risk of entrepreneurship, can play, can jump into that game, that game. Right. So, I absolutely agree with you that it you know the hardships of, of getting there is there is there, but for certain people, the starting point line is so much vastly different. Right. How do they get out of that? If if and if entrepreneurship is like a system to get out of out of, of poverty or a system to like you know to to you know to capitalize yourself and, and grow, should we as uh, you know should we be concerned about equalizing that playing field? And again, uh, we should absolutely give everyone the opportunity 
and the tools. So, you know, we should have incubators. We should have yeah. accelerator programs. We should have more mentors. We, you know, we should have things like the Can Health ecosystem that can help bring about uh, companies and, and help them compete against the U.S. guys. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But what we shouldn't do is, you know, uh, just be there to say, um, you know, here's a half a million dollars of government money and it's OK if you fail. Right. Mm. Um, yeah. and, or if you just stay status quo, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, support them, you know, have the government of, of Canada or a provincial government say, we're going to go to Amazon and we're going to do X, Y, Z. So you can start at a good foundation, but the rest is up to you. Right. Gotcha. We cannot be having people hold your hand all the way through if they want to get to that, the rest of it do what we need to do. But this is hard. And I don't I just yeah. I just don't want people to think to your point, this whole uh, glamorization of, you know, I'm going to create the next TikTok or I'm going to create the next Instagram or whatever. Yeah. It's fucking hard. Mm. Right? N yeah, Naveed, I, I love this. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is hard. Uh, it reminds me of uh, JFK, the quote by JFK, you know, we do things because they're hard. Um, that, right. So going, going on this, uh, you know, I, I love I love the theme of this talk. Uh, I love uh, the stories you've shared with us. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, love to have you again in six months and follow up with more stories. Sure. No, absolutely. Ravi, listen, thank you so much for your time. Um, and if there's any anything else that I can do in the future, please let me know. But I think what you guys are doing, that's that's laying that strong foundation. Right? Thank you. Is the knowledge Thank you. And, yeah. and I continue to do that because that's what's going to make hopefully people listening to this saying, oh, OK, this, this and this. Now I can learn from it. That's going to give us a strong foundation to go up to the next level. Absolutely. Perfect. I mean, we're going to close off on that. Uh, stick around for a few minutes. We can do a quick debrief. Uh, but for everyone if you, uh, who, uh, who tuned in, thank you so much. And thank you again.